All right, 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to keep uh, us in context here. We'll be in only in verse 4 and 5. So 1 through 7 here is the full paragraph. It reads like this. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Father, we come to you this morning as we get ready to dive into your word, Lord. And we ask that as we do so, that you would draw us nearer, that you would convict us of the sin that has been left in our lives. Uh, that we might walk in wholeness, Lord, towards you. Lord, we pray for those who are on the outside physically of this building, but those inside who may not know you today, that you would draw them close, Lord, and that you would save them. Those in this community, uh, God, to know you, that we might shine a light during this short period of time that we have to sojourn or walk on this earth, Lord. We will be careful, Lord, to give you all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Stephen Davey, when preaching through Titus, said of the overseer, pastor, elders in the church, this, and I quote, the elders have priority. They are to be obeyed. The church is not a democracy or a republic. The elders are not elected officials so that they might represent their various constituencies that put them into the office. The elders are not representatives of the people to bring the opinions of the people into a boardroom. In fact, they are not accountable to the people. They are accountable to God, who has set them over in leading the people. Elders do not speak for the people. They speak to the people on behalf of Jesus Christ, who has given them a message that in any culture and in every generation never changes. This statement, does it not, saints, uh, presses against our extremely Autonomous Western minds. Descriptions of elders like to be obeyed, not elected officials or not representatives of the people's opinions violates how we Americans think, right? However, being an elder in a local church is a very serious business to do. We take it very seriously. It's been two years and I've been asked, Carl, when are you going to bring elders <laughs> up to the church to vote on? And uh, I, I tell you this, as soon as I can watch, observe their lives, think through the filter of God's word and put them before you. I would want you to know as your pastor, as the only elder right now in the church, that I would not take that in an unserious manner that I would look at these things, that I would take time to get to know these men before I put them before you. Because essentially, when I put them before you, I will have said to you, I believe that they should elder or help me to elder this church, that they should be your pastors. It's so serious that the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 7, said this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, 
Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. As I have said in the weeks leading up to today, every Christian at some point and sometimes multiple times during their lifetime will need to find a church and will have to decide who their pastors will be. I would ask you this, will your decision be based on what he looks like, how well he speaks, what kind of ministries he allows to operate within the church? Will it be of your first uh, thinking to think, well, maybe I ought to pull out 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and Titus chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, and will I look at that church, and will I filter the way I think about what a church is through the Word of God, or will I just go and find something that I like or something that fits me? How will you make a decision about the church that you will go to? The Word of God is not silent about that question. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write down the qualifications for an overseer, elder pastor, and wrote these instructions to the early church in 1 Timothy 3.15 so that y'all will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. We've spoken much about that text because it is the concluding statement to what Timothy has, is being instructed starting in chapter 2. It is the bookend saying, if you want to know how church is supposed to be done, do it like this. Starting in chapter 2, we learn to pray for all men because God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved. We learn that men are to lead the prayer in the corporate worship service and that women are to come dressed modestly and adorned with good works. We learn that women are not to teach or to exercise authority over a man in the corporate worship service because doing so would not honor the way God has made men and women. We learn that it must be a man who holds the office of an overseer in the church and that the man must aspire, right, or long for. It must be something not just like, well, I guess I have to do that or maybe I would want to do that, but there should be some kind of drive, some kind of gift God has given him inside that he desires it, he aspires to it. He longs for helping God's church see what God has said and order their lives around it. Last week, we took our magnifying glasses out, remember, and we peered at the moracle, the moral, <laughs> moracle, that's a word, look it up, sometime after church, <laughs> not now, right? We looked at the moral character requirements of an overseer's life. We learned that the main qualifier is that the man must be above reproach and that he must be a one-woman man temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, or better understood, stranger-loving. Remember how we talked about that word. Able to teach. He must not be addicted to wine or pugnacious. I really wanted to stop there because one of the translations of the word pugnacious is a pugilist. I'm not going to stop there now either. Anyway, he must not be a fighter, right? A striker, an angry man, but he must be gentle in opposition to that, peaceable and free from the love of money. The overseer or pastor of God's church then cannot be just any man. They must be one who longs for the office and they must be morally qualified 
And we'll see today, if they have a family, they must manage it, and not just manage it, they must manage it well. Beloved, we will see that today, the proving ground for a pastor's ability to shepherd or take care of the church is nothing less than his family. When I first came to First Baptist Church just a couple years ago and candidated, uh, we had a question and answer time uh, period where uh, the, the, the body sat out and they asked me questions and, and I turned to these passages and I encouraged them, you need to read these passages and you need to call people who know me and you need to call my references and you need to ask them, do you think this man is above reproach? I asked them, look into my family, talk to my kids, ask them what they think about their dad behind closed doors. Is he angry? Is he manipulative? Is he mean? Or is he gentle? And does he teach them and love them? That's what we'll look at today, 1 Timothy 3. Verses 4 and 5 is where we are going to focus. It starts, verse 4, he must be. The clause, he must be, is being supplied by the translators, and it's done so because the list of qualifications is kind of long for the man's family. So the, the translators of the verse just pull the he must be down to help us understand it, and it is, uh, it is to focus on this one who manages. The Greek word being translated manage or rule is praistemi. It is comprised of two words, the preposition pra, meaning before or above, and the word histemi, meaning to, to make a stand or to stand. So very woodenly and spaciously, the overseer must be the type of person who stands above in his household. He is first. He has priority, as Pastor Davey had said in his comment. Similarly, in the letter, letter to Titus, the Holy Spirit says this in Titus chapter 1, verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach as, look here, God's steward. Although the Greek word for steward is different than manage in our text today, it is interesting that at its root, the word steward literally means the manager of a household. So God's overseer must be the manager. He must be in uh, control. He must know what's going on in his home. He cannot be passive. He cannot be the type of guy who just stays at the office and studies 24-7 and ignores his family. He must manage his family. He must be the steward in his household. So the first thing we note is the pastor is to stand above. He is to rule. He is to steward his household. Beloved, there are so many homes in the world that the men have become passive, and so much so that they are not only not ruling their households, as we see here, there's a qualifier that he not only needs to manage it, but look there in your text, it says he must manage it what? Well. It's not just that he's in control of his home, a lot of men are in control of their home. Are they in control of it, and are they doing it well? To answer the question of why he must do it, I want to take us and let us return to a couple of weeks ago and consider what we learned about women being the main speaker or the pastor in a church. If you'll look back with me right there, if you've got your Bibles open to 1 Timothy, if you go back to chapter 2 and verses 12 and 13, 
Paul said this, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Why? For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. Remember that we went back to Genesis during, uh, uh, during this, and we gave it some very close inspection. We found that Paul's reference as to the reason a woman could not teach or exercise authority over a man in a corporate worship service was packaged up in this idea of creation order. Adam, Adam, was brought out of Adamah, the ground. And Eve, Isha, was brought out of Adam, who was Ish. And we saw and we noticed the wordplay that was going on there, that God had created Adam to have priority and he had given him dominion. And so much so that he had given them the dominion to name his wife who was brought from him, remember? We noted that when God cursed Adam, he said first, Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, because, speaking to Adam, the Lord says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you. So our ancestor Adam had given up his role of having dominion. He had gone out. He had, he had not managed well. He was managing because he sat there and he watched. The text as much tells us that, right? She ate and she turned around and gave it to Adam, who's sitting there, passive, not doing what he's called to do, not having dominion, not, not respectively protecting his wife is what he should have been doing. He should have been saying, that's weird. There's a serpent speaking and he's speaking to my wife. And he's telling her to do the very thing that I have told her you shouldn't do. And he just stood there and he watched. And he broke the creation order. He did not manage well. He did not have dominion. He did not protect his wife. And it ushered in sin and death to all creation. We noted that the woman can disobey this command not to teach and preach at a, at a corporate worship service, right? They can do that, just like Eve could disobey her husband and eat the forbidden fruit. So, beloved, we learned that the issue is not, right, at all whether a woman can preach or teach. I've told you, I've told you before, maybe I've told you when we went through that text. I sat in Hebrew classes and Greek classes with, with ladies who uh, could teach what God's Word said much better than I could. They were much better speakers, much more eloquent speakers than I was. They were there. They were learning. And you know why they were learning and wanting to learn? So they could go and they could teach women's Bible studies and they could talk and speak at women's conferences and do all those things so that they could exposit God's Word well. But not one of them is hoping to stand at a pulpit at a corporate worship service to teach. Why? Not because they can't. Certainly they can. It's that they're not supposed to. Remember, we learned that the curse given to Eve for her disobedience was twofold. God said that he would greatly increase the pain of childbirth. And second, that Eve would desire or long for, right? That same kind of longing for that I spoke of, of the elder and wanting to pastor. She would desire, she would long for her husband's God-given authority. But the Lord said in Genesis 3.16, He will rule over you. So, beloved, we see here in the qualifications of being a pastor that if a man has a family, just like the first family, Adam and Eve, he must manage or rule his own household well. In other words, men, 
It is your God-given role to rule your household. And if you desire or long for being an overseer in God's church, you must not only rule it, you must rule it well. And let me say this, church, both men and women, we should look at that. I told you that in the months to come, I will probably put Nathan before you as an elder and probably Paul Grant's. And I encourage you to look at their lives, go sit down and eat with them, get to know their families. So that you can cast a confident vote. Amen. So. It is your role. It is your role to rule. It is your role to rule well and protect your family. So what does a godly household look like, we might ask? Right? Here's where I'm going to have you turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. And we'll spend quite a bit of time here. Starting in verse 22. And we're going to answer this question. What does a godly household look like? If you go sit down with one of these elders, what should you look for? What types of things should you look for in their home? Ephesians 5.22. Wives, be subject Some of your translations are going to say submit there. Be subject to your own husbands. Notice that clause, to your own husbands. It's not like you have to be uh, a woman uh, of a godly man's household. It has to just go around doing what whoever says. That would break the creation order, right? Your husband has a, 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 a distinct role in the wife's life to take care of her. Your own husbands as, look there, this is a strong statement, to the Lord. Here, as we would expect, creation order is brought into the discussion of the home. To be subject or be in submission is the structure which God had set in order at creation, and it remains to this day. Paul is speaking this now some 2,000 years later, but about 4,000 years after the events of the garden. So for a wife, she should submit to her husband like she submits to the Lord Jesus. It's a strong statement. So as we look and we look into the elder's home, that should be an element. Practically speaking then, uh, when the wife reads the word or is reminded by the Holy Spirit that that which the Lord Jesus has taught, she should fall in line or submit regardless of how she feels about it. Jesus is the Lord and the Lord has set the husband as the manager in the home. There should be a picture of a symbiotic relationship, a wife submitting, falling into line. We talked about this word earlier uh, some weeks ago, that the word submit is a Greek word that is very much military in its mindset, and it means to fall in line, to stand at rank, right? As somebody might come along and inspect you, that is the idea, that she's to submit, to fall in line. Verses 23 and 24 give us the reason for this submission. For the husband is the head of the wife. Adam was created first, remember? For dominion, and Eve came from him. He was, uh, she specifically was created as his helper. So there is a creation order. Beloved, I have said this, and I'll say it probably so many times, you'll get sick of hearing it, but when somebody designs something, they design it to work in a certain manner. You will not today, if you have a gas engine, drive down and put diesel in your gas engine because you know that it will not work well. The creator created. He designed man. He brought up. He built Adam. And from Adam, he created Eve as a 
helpmate. So Paul says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. Christ was first, and he came first, establishing dominion. And the church was created, right, from him as his bride, his helpmate. He, Christ, that is, he himself, Christ, being the Savior of the body. The imagery here being one that takes uh, place, right, is if you take the head off of the body, the body dies. Therefore, the head has priority. In other words, no Christ, no church. And if a wife will not submit to her husband, there will be death to come in the home, just like Adam and Eve. That's what Paul's after here. Verse 24, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Grinds against us a little bit in America, right? In everything. Now, I want to pause and I want to speak to husbands and wives here for a, a, a word of, of um, warning. In everything assumes a Christian home. That is centered, right, on holy living and a subjection to Christ. This is not some kind of weird thing where because your husband is just simply a man that you have to do everything he says. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. If a believing or unbelieving husband were ever to ask his wife to act in a way that would violate her Christian walk before the Lord, she is free to respectfully tell her sinning husband to take a hike. I would hope that you would. But I know that this verse has been violated. I know in quote-unquote Christian circles that the idea is that because I'm the man and I'm the man of the house that you have to do what I say. I know that in that very atmosphere, violations of both morally and personally and even lawfully have taken place where the man has said, and you will do what I have told you. I'm telling you right now, man, if that is your idea or if you know somebody who it is, that is wrong. The idea is we assume Paul is writing Christians in Ephesus, in Christian homes in Ephesus. He assumes that you are a Christian that would not violate the moral or actual will of any other human being, let alone your wife. She's free to tell you, take a hike. You are never bound, ladies, by God's word to sin against the Lord. Any unlawful act of abuse should be immediately dealt with. Come to the pastors or go to the law enforcement if you need to. Although a different scenario, Paul wrote the Corinthian church about immoral acts going on within families in the church. In 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 5, there was a man in the church sleeping with his father's wife. Paul says this in verse 11, is somewhat of a summation. I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Listen here, not even to eat with such a one. That's strong, Right? This is not some kind of license, men, where you just get to tell your ladies what to do and they got to do it. There's no license for immorality in the home or any other type of thing that would, would be going on behind closed doors. God's word is so, so 
so speaks to our lives about living holy in, in such a way that anybody who would observe our lives would see Christ and say, how can I know Christ? And the home is the best place to look at it. Notice, beloved, that the reason for disciplining a person for immoral behavior is not so that they can be punished, but rather that the punishment would draw them to repentance. Paul, who had the authority from Jesus to make such judgment calls in the church, told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5.5, I have decided, he'd made up his mind, much like 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, where he puts Hymenaeus and Alexander out of the church and turns them over to Satan. He says, I have already decided about this case, this immoral case, to deliver such a one, that is the man sleeping with his stepmother, to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. So that, here's the important thing, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. All church discipline, right, comes down to this, that we would discipline somebody not for punitive damages, right? Not to just see them behind bars and, and I hope you stay there forever, right? The idea is we turn them over to the flesh, turn them over to Satan, knowing that it's going to take them so far down, it's going to destroy their lives, and they might be drawn to repentance. They might be drawn to say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. So Paul turns them over not to just, ah, oh, that guy's horrible, and he was horrible but so that his spirit may be saved in the, Lord, uh, in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, the wife who is being immorally treated should not only turn her husband in to the elders or the authorities, whichever is appropriate, for being naughty. I really like that word. But more so, so that he would not spend eternity in hell. Amen? It is an act of kindness. It is an act of love to not allow somebody to maintain a sinful lifestyle. It's the whole attitude of church discipline. The idea in 1 John is that if you are truly a believer, if the Spirit of God is truly working inside your life, that there will not be ongoing sin happening in your life. And so 1 John presses on this issue, right? And, and essentially, he, John is begging people, saying, listen, if there is ongoing sin in your life, you are not saved Repent, right? Repent. Don't live this world calling yourself a Christian, acting like a Christian, thinking you're a Christian. Repent, right? Be saved. Wives, you are never called to submit to ungodly requests from your husband. If you're having a problem, you can come and talk to myself, one of the elders, or if your husband is breaking the law, turn him in. It may save you physically, and it may save your husband's soul, even if he claims to be a Christian. Amen? Husbands and future husbands, let me talk to you for a second. Notice that Ephesians 5.22, you are being put in the same category, the category of authority as the Lord Jesus meaning that your lives should be like his in every way. What am I saying? Husbands, if you are in any way acting or you think you can act wicked, like Adam did by not protecting his wife from Satan, you will be judged for how you treat one of God's daughters. That is God's daughter. 
ironically, and there's much mystery, at least in my mind around this, is that you will not be married when you're in heaven. How are you treating God's daughter? How are you treating that princess? She's been asked to submit to your leadership. Make sure that your leadership is godly. It looks like Christ. Amen. In other words, this text is not a license for your domineering self-will, men, but a call to live like Jesus. Amen. So we turn our attention to the husband's role in the home. One commentator noted that there is 125 words dedicated to husbands, where just 41 were designated to the wife. Let's take a look in verse 25, Ephesians 5. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives, notice here, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. I'm reminded about seven years into Valerie and I's marriage, we struggled uh, uh, like many young marriages do, and and we were in that zone of time. I think five to seven years is kind of the average for American uh, marriages to kind of begin to fall apart and people to leave. And, and I remember we just had kind of a perpetual struggle in our home. And I remember uh, it would always be, it would always go something like, well, if you would do this, I wouldn't do this. Well, if you wouldn't do that, I wouldn't do this. And we would kind of cycle and, and struggle. And we did that for about two years, just kind of kind of struggled. And finally, one day, as clear as the Holy Spirit could impress it upon my soul, convicted me as a man and said, it is your role to break that cycle. You are to lead well. Stop sinning. You, if she never stops doing whatever it is that you think is wrong and is wronging you, that's okay. Your role is to love her like Christ loved the church. And it hit me so hard. It broke my heart. And I realized, listen, this, this commandment in Ephesians 5, this life, this family, is not about an issue of, of doing something because somebody deserves it or doesn't deserve it. It's doing it. It's submitting to the Word of God, saying, Lord, even in my sinfulness and my inability to see right, I am going to lean on you and I am going to stop. I'm going to give my life up like Christ gave his life up for the church that we might have unity in our family. And secondly, if my wife never agrees or never changes or never stops, I will have done the right thing. Can you get there, men? Can you lead that way? You might underline in your Bibles, men, love. Hopefully your wife isn't reaching over underlining it for you. <laughs> This word is agape and um, carries with it this nuance of, of the kind of love God has for his people. The kind of love that we see throughout the Old Testament, his hesed love, regardless of what somebody does, his commitment was to her, to Israel. We see this in the book of Hosea play out over and over and over. It is this imagery that God is going to be committed to his covenant. He will not Break it. That is love that you're reading in your New Testament as agape. I will not break this covenant. I will continue on. I will love. I will agape like Christ himself loved the church. 
It has the feelings, of course, of love. It's not just that we separate from it, but more distinctly speaks of this self-sacrificial service. Like Christ who did not desire, right, the cross in his personhood, but made a distinction or a decision to obey the Father and believing that the outcome of obedience to God would well outweigh the temporal comforts of dying on the cross. A godly husband will look to the word of God, forgive his wife for her shortcomings, and serve her. And why? Verse 26. So that he, I want you to notice the capital H there. So that he, when you see that, if your Bible doesn't happen, have it, it should be capitalized. It's a distinguishing mark. Just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, so that he is a reference to Christ. He, Christ, might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he, that is Jesus again, capitalized, might present to himself, Jesus, the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she, that is the church, would be holy and blameless. Back to husbands, verse 28, so husbands ought to also self-sacrificially love, there's the word, agape, their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves agapes, his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Verse 30, because we are members of his, that's Christ, his body. Verse 31, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, verse 32, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. That is that they are one, right? Christ is the head. We are the body. One cannot exist without the other, beloved. Just like husbands and wives are one, the husband is the head, and she is the body. One cannot live without the other. A church without Christ is a lost church, and a wife with a lost husband is a lost family. Nevertheless, verse 33 says, Each individual among you also is to love, self-sacrificially love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. I often say this to husbands and wives. Husbands, you're not called to love your wife because she is lovable, but rather because it is your duty to obey the word of God. And wives, you are not called to respect your husband because he is respectable, but because it is your duty, is your duty to obey the, love, the word of God. Certainly, wives will do things that are not loving and lovable. Certainly, men in the, ha- in the home will do things that are not respectable. But we turn back to the Word of God, and we serve the Word of God, and we fight for unity within our households so that when the outside world looks at our lives, looks in our homes, they see a picture of Jesus Christ in the church, this picture of love and self-sacrifice that brings unity when it doesn't make sense Right? Well, your husband seems to kind of be a jerk, but you love him so much. Why is that? Because Christ loved me like that. Because I'm kind of a lot of a sinner, and I need a lot of saving. Amen?
When we think of what 1 Timothy 3 verses 4 and 5 is revealing about an overseer's home, we see that he must be one who manages his own home well. When, uh, when we inspect his home, we should see a home that is managed well with a wife who is submitted to a godly husband, and we should see a man who is committed to self-sacrificial love for his bride. She should not be being drug around, right? I had this kind of image pop into my mind. I hope it was the Holy Spirit, but I was thinking about this text and Right, You always have this image of a, of a wedding, and I don't know if this is still popular or not, but it certainly was back when we were getting married, 20, almost three years ago. Right? You would do your wedding, you would go out and you find your car, and there would be strings uh, with aluminum cans, and somebody would have painted just married on the back window, right? This imagery popped into my head. I hope that your marriages don't look like that. Your wife, some aluminum can attached to some long string that you're just dragging around down the road because you got married. Ultimately, if the wife is rightly submitted and the husband is loving correctly, we see a picture of our Savior, amen? Jesus Christ and his bride the assembly of the church. In addition to the relationship between husband and wives uh, uh, being managed well, the overseer, elder, pastor, shepherd must be keeping his children under control with all dignity. The parallel passage to this is found in Titus, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, saying this, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having, chil- uh, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. As I mentioned last week, it is not a requirement for a pastor to have a family, but if he does, his children must look like this. Both 1 Timothy and Titus require, if they have a family, and that family then has children, the man must be keeping them under control with all dignity, 1 Timothy, and having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion. As Titus says, now you may have noticed some differences there. One is going to say, uh, right, this idea that having them under control, and the other is going to say having children who believe. So you might say this, what gives? Is it that they should just be under control, or do my children have to be believers to be an elder? Well, the word believe in the Greek New Testament is pista, and it can be translated actively as believing, or it can be translated passively as being faithful, right, or obedient. One expositor noted that the Greek word pistos is used both ways in the New Testament. It is used actively in 1 Timothy 6, verse 2. I should have it up here for you. Um, I hope to have it up. Yeah, there it is. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, verse 2, saying, those who have believers as their masters... And then he goes right on. Paul uses it the same exact word in the same way, uh, passively for those who are faithful men in 2 Timothy 2.2, saying of the doctrines of the church, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So there is the same word. It's being used completely different, one actively, one passively. And which is it here? My guess is that if I could come out and look at all your different translations, you may have something different there. And what I do know is that the NASB, I believe, got it wrong and that they uh, call the children to have to be believers, as does the NIV. 
And uh, as much as I love it, I believe they're wrong. If you have the NKJV, the New King James, or the King James, the verse in Titus is translated passively, having faithful children. The pastor's children, bear with my logic here, have to be Christians. This would not be under the pastor's control like all the other qualifications are. It would be the only one, right? That some outside source, of course, God alone, sovereignly saves. The pastor has no control over that. Additionally, it seems to me that this, the explanatory clause in Titus, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, would uh, be very unnecessary. No genuine Christian can live a life of dissipation or rebellion. In other words, if they have to be believers, there is no need for this clause, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Are you tracking with me? There's just no need for it. If they have to be believers, they're not going to be those who get involved in drunkenness and all kinds of problems, dissipation and rebellion. They're going to be believing kids. Stephen Davey commented on Titus, and he said this, I cannot agree more. If Paul means to say that, there are, that an elder's children have become Christians, uh, excuse me, have to become Christians, then that's all he needs to say. He can put a period after believe. It would not, it would be unnecessary to add they cannot be guilty of pagan ritualistic drunkenness. That would be like saying your children must be nice to other students in school and they can't be cannibals. Doesn't make sense. The statement doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. The context doesn't make sense. If they're nice, he goes on to say, they won't need to be told not to kill and eat their classmates. Right? It is that clarifying phrase at the end of the verse that explains that Paul has their conduct in mind, not their conversion in mind. Beloved, the elder's home must be one of order. And if you return with me to Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, you can see that a Christian home's uh, uh, with children is to, uh, what it is to look like. Verse 1 of chapter 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord. I want you to notice that in the Lord, much like the wife who should never submit to sinful behavior being asked by her husband, children, you never have to obey your parents. Now, I shouldn't stop there. <laughs> if what they are asking you to do violates the commandments and the word of God, you're being told to do something that is biblically immoral, you do not have to obey. If that immorality is illegal, make sure to tell your pastor or law enforcement. You are to obey your parents if their request is in the Lord. If it is biblical, if it is honoring, if it brings Christ honor, if it is through the lens of Scripture of a Christian life. Amen? Therefore, the pastor's home will be a home where the children are obedient to their parents. That is, managing well. Verse 2, honor your fathers and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, let me speak to you. I have uh, certainly been guilty uh, uh, more than once, probably, of provoking my kids, especially as teenagers, to anger. As I said, that all of the qualifications for being a pastor, right, are not that you're going to perfectly walk them out, but you will fall. But did you fall forward? Are you getting better? 
Let me talk to you, uh, uh, young men, when your kids grow up and they begin to be teenagers and they begin to process logical thought. They're going to push on you and they're going to test you, right? And it is within the father's nature for some reason to push back, right? To provoke somebody to anger. I got you. I can mentally take you in this argument. Don't do that, the word of God says, right? It's not going to bring unity in your home. It's not going to help. But more importantly, I would say that you and it is your role to bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Think about that. Ask yourself, are you doing that in your life? Husbands, are you bringing up your children? Are you making sure your children are brought up? Do you have a time when you sit down and read the Bible with your family and you help them understand the disciplines and what's going on in the Word of God? I know for our family, we take that time after dinner. It doesn't happen every night. We're not perfect at it, but, but we're pretty consistent. We sit down and we read whatever chapter of whatever book that we're in and we talk about that, and we spend time, and we, we pray, and we think through the Word of God. Are you doing that, men? Are you creating that atmosphere in your children's home? When we're asked whether a man is qualified to pastor a church, his family life matters. Paul goes on here in our text today to ask this rhetorical question. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household... How will he take care of the church of God? We're supposed to understand the answer to that question, right? And the answer is he won't. If we're looking at qualifications for elders, we need to look into the home. We need to see what, how the man is handling his family. Both Is his wife loving and respectful? Is there unity? Does it look like a picture of Christ in the church? Are his kids respectful? If they're in the home, I think it's an important distinguish, distinguishing mark. We can't control if our kids come up in the home, they're in the home, right? We can control that. We can say you're going to be respectful here. But if they go on and they're unbelievers and they live their life, that's not going to disqualify a man. They're off living to themselves. In the home, he must manage well. And if he can't manage his household, beloved, the Bible says he cannot Take care of the church of God. Amen. The overseer or the pastor of God's church then cannot be just any man. They must long for the office. They must be morally qualified. And if they have a family, they must manage it well. Amen. How are you doing, men? How are you doing, ladies? I pray that today's message will cause good discussion in your house and at lunch. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and um, all that it means to us, Lord, that you did not leave us alone, but you gave us a picture of what a pastor's life should look like. And beyond that, what a godly marriage and what a godly home should look like. Thank you, Lord. Help us as your church, as your bride, to submit to all that your word has said here today, Lord. Remind us of how we might Uh, live better lives, Lord, and not just for ourselves, God, but we might live those better lives in such a way, Lord, that you are magnified in our community in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Help us, Lord, to reach out to to those around us. Help us, Lord, to grow in in respectful families that we might have people over. They might look and see you and the church, Lord, and that you would save many. We'll give you all the glory, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.